Well, welcome uh, to part three of this teaching series that we're calling Escape, and we're trying to look at how we can lead a life that we don't want to leave. And we've been talking about a number of the behaviors that we kind of participate in that are escapists, that help us to kind of escape our reality. And we've been talking about it a little bit in the negative way that we do it, but today I want to talk about how we can escape to a life that we really want to live. So we're talking about escaping in more of a positive way today. There's this movie that came out in the 19th called The Great Escape, and it was based on a true story um, from World War II. And it's about a whole bunch of allied soldiers who had been captured and were in a prisoner of war camp. Now, they've been there for a while, and so they started realizing that they needed to escape. And so the true story is that a whole bunch of them got together, and they decided that secretly they were going to dig tunnels to get out of the camp. Specifically, they were going to dig three tunnels. They called them Tom, Dick, and Harry. And they believed that if they dug three, then hopefully at least one of them would work out. And so they kind of fashioned in secret these homemade digging tools. And they picked three different spots in different huts where they started just to dig dirt, like with their hands and these little instruments that they had crafted. And along the way, as they started digging them, they would take uh, boards from their beds and bring them. And they would, they would, when they could get away with it, they would steal a chair here or a table there. And they would use those materials to stabilize these tunnels that they were digging. And it actually so happened that one of the tunnels was discovered by the Germans and they destroyed it. Another one of the tunnels that they had planned where they were coming up over the time that they were digging the tunnel, they had actually expanded the boundaries of the camp. And so where they had tunneled to come up was actually still within the boundaries that had been expanded. And so it was no good either. But they did find that they dug this one tunnel 30 feet deep and over 300 feet long that they tunneled all the way out of the camp painstakingly. I mean, they would dig this dirt and they would put it in their pockets or in their socks and then they would walk out and when they could kind of do it undetected, they would find a place somewhere in the camp to unload that dirt. And you just think how painstaking that would have been, how much effort that would have taken, just the incredible planning and the hard work and sneaking around. And it took them like a year in order to build this tunnel all the way out. And finally, it was the middle of the winter. It was all snowy. Uh, they actually, the hatch that they had dug up to the ground uh, was frozen and it took them a half an hour just to open where they had already dug to get out. But on that day, uh, 76 prisoners escaped before the Germans saw what they were doing and shut it down. And I, I just look at that and I think, man, that is so incredible to put that much time and energy and planning to really think that you could do it. But what it shows to me is that when the status quo is worse than the discomfort or the pain of making a big change, that's when you're ready to do it. When you look around and realize we can't live like this anymore. We can't stay here. This cannot be the way that things go forward. That's when you're ready to make a big change and to do big, big, big things to make it happen. And that's kind of what we're talking about in this series. And when you're ready to look around at your life and say, I can't go on like this. I have to escape it. And that's where I think we have some of these escape tendencies to say, maybe it's time to make a positive escape to a different kind of life. Let me tell you what I kind of mean by that, the kind of life that many of us live. There's a, a former president of the United States, we don't have to uh, say his name, um, but he was known on camera for often saying that his favorite book 
was the Bible. Now, when people came back to him and said, what's your favorite part? What do you like about the Bible? He was also known for kind of evading that and saying, I like the whole thing. Or sometimes he would say, that's very personal. I don't want to get into it. But eventually, as he got pressed more and more, he started saying that his favorite part was the eye for an eye part. Eye for an eye. It's in the Old Testament. Um, It's part of the laws uh, of the Old Testament. And um, it's a curious choice. A lot of Christians think it's a curious choice because it's also a specific verse, passage, that Jesus quotes. But he says, you've heard it said an eye for an eye. And then he says something very different. And we'll get to that later in this message. But an eye for an eye in the Old Testament law was basically a, a rule that said, you get treated the way you treat other people. And if somebody does something wrong to you, You can pay them back the same amount of pain or wrong. Not more, but also not less. And in the Old Testament, it was actually a way of saying that you shouldn't hurt people more than they've hurt you. But it was the principle of retribution. You get what you deserve. An eye for an eye. Now, that is the way that I think so many people live life. You get what you deserve. If I treat someone this way, they treat me back that way. It's very transactional. But it leads to two kind of uh, ways of looking at life that I think are problematic for us, that a lot of us, uh, if we think about it, I believe, want to escape. The first one is a competitive lifestyle. It means that I need to look after myself or myself and my family. Look after number one. It means that we see life as competitive. Dog eat dog. Right? If I perform well, then I get certain rewards. If, I, if I'm successful, then this is the kind of life that I get. And so we always have to compete with each other because we see that not everybody has the same amount. And so if I have to climb over somebody or if I have to win and somebody else has to lose, well, that's what needs to happen because it's an eye for an eye. You get what you deserve. You get what you put in. And so you've always got to be competitive and, and fighting for other people. What happens is, for many of us, is uh, one of two things on the extreme ends, and there's, there's spots in the middle of the spectrum, but some of us see that competitive style of life, and I've always got to be successful and get ahead and get beyond other people, and uh, it paralyzes us because we feel like failures. We feel like we can't compete. We can't keep up. We're not winning in life. And so sometimes we just feel defeated and now we're paralyzed and we can't go on with this kind of life. Others of us go the other way and we have kind of an unhealthy drivenness. I've always got to get more. I've always got to progress. I've always got to be more successful. I've always got to get ahead of other people. No matter what what the cost. And those are two extremes, but a lot of us do that. In a competitive lifestyle mode, if that's how you think of life, is that everything's a competition. The motivating factors are things like fear and scarcity. There's not enough for everybody, so I have to compete. It's dog eat dog. It's an eye for an eye. I got to make sure that I'm always getting ahead so that I get the rewards of that. Scarcity. There's not enough for everybody. Not everybody can win. Not everybody can be successful. Not everybody's going to have enough money. And with that comes the fear of scarcity. And so that fear starts to fuel us or shut us down. But neither are really healthy ways of living, and uh, a lot of us want to escape that. We can see this on uh, personal levels, and it can lead to things that are very extreme. Some of us might just feel very stressed by that, but it could lead to, say, uh, violence. It could lead not just on a personal level, but on a macro level to the way that nations fight against and compete each other for resources or for certain spots in the world and in and, and politics and all the rest of it um, and can get very scary. The second way that we might be uh, looking at life is comparative, a very us versus them. 
who's good and who's bad? And where do I fit in? And this comes from, I think for a lot of us, a drive just to have really clear definitions and it's easier for us mentally to say, here's the good guys and here's the bad guys. And good guys do these things and don't do those things and the bad guys do these things and don't do these things. Uh, but we want to slot ourselves into that kind of comparative of, you know, I'm good and the people who aren't like me are bad. The people who do things differently, the people who have different lifestyle choices, all those kind of things. And we sort of separate people out in this comparative way, right? It's, it's the, the eye for an eye. If you're bad, then bad things are going to happen to you. So I'm going to shove the bad people over into this category. And this leads to things like, uh, say, excluding people, bullying people. If we go higher and higher up, we might say, again, some of the, the isms like racism and sexism, and there's a whole bunch of others of them, comes from this kind of comparative, I'm good, you're bad, or these are the good people, these are the bad people. The motivators for a comparative lifestyle are often guilt and shame. So I'm guilty because I've done bad things, or somebody else is guilty and I've judged them guilty for doing bad things. And that's what guilt is. Guilt is that... that um, Emotion that comes from a recognition, I've done something bad, but then it goes further into shame. Not just that I've done bad things, but those bad things now define me or define you, define somebody else. And we can project that inwards to ourselves, sometimes give ourselves a complex, I'm a bad person, I never match up, I'm not pretty enough, I don't fit into this group, I'm not popular enough, I'm not successful enough, I don't compare well to these people. I've done bad things and I am a bad person. Or we can project it out, outwards and do all those same things, but kind of demonizing other people. And again, there's kind of these big macro ways that we experience competitive lifestyles or comparative lifestyles. And I think a lot of us, the way we experience it is, is stress or maybe worry. But these things lead to always feeling like we need to be more, always striving to get further ahead and to compete with people. Whether that's uh, in our jobs or how our families look or, uh, you know, even our religious, the way that we look at our religious views and our morality. And then the comparing, it comes the same way, the guilt and the shame where we put people and ourselves in these boxes. And it becomes like so hard, I think, for many of us just to have the energy to live that way. And I think when we start to realize and recognize that we can't have the status quo, it's, it's more painful to stay in the status quo than to change, then we're ready to change, to escape from a life that's all competition and all comparison and to look for something else. And that's what I want to talk about today. We're in the book of Jonah, Jonah chapter 3 this week. It's this prophet who God told go up and, and preach to these people, his enemies, the Ninevites. And Jonah, we saw, did all the things that he wasn't supposed to do. He went the wrong way. He gets in a boat. There's a big storm. He gets thrown out. Um, he goes down into death. And then God appoints a fish to swallow him up and spit him out. And that's kind of where we pick up the story in chapter 3. What we're going to see is the story resets. It starts all over again. So Jonah chapter 3, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. So we see here in the opening verses of this chapter, almost exactly what we saw in the opening of the entire book in chapter one. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah, this time a second time, it says arise and go to Nineveh, exactly what Jonah was supposed to do in chapter one. Here, the great city, we see this um, in probably... Um, a couple of different ways. It's a big city, but also it's an important city. And we'll find out that it's important, not just to people, because it's a, a big, 
uh, important city, but also it's important to God and he actually cares for the people. And then in call out against it, the message that I tell you. So this is what he was told to do the first time, go and call out against it. But now specifically the message that God is going to tell. But this time, Jonah, instead of taking off the opposite direction, we read what we expected to have read for a prophet to do in chapter one. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. According to the word of the Lord, he did what God told him to. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, very important, three days journey in breadth. That three days journey now should be triggering in us. If you've read the first couple of chapters and followed with us last week, something inside of you, three days is important. It probably means um, three things, maybe one of these three things, but I think probably all of three things that we're supposed to think of. Number one, size. It's a big city. It would take you three days to travel through this city. It's just the the geographic importance of it. Number two, some scholars point out that in this uh, time and in this part of the world, for someone like Jonah, a public prophetic figure, which is not unheard of. These are people that existed in that time and, and this kind of thing would happen. There would be a certain protocol for him to go to a city like Nineveh. And the protocol had three days worth of requirements. The first day would be going into the city and meeting with their officials. The second day is where a you know, public preacher or something would actually present their message. And the third day, there would be other kind of stuff again with the leadership uh, sort of a, a moving out. And so maybe that's what is in reference to here. The third thing that I think we should think of is that uh, Jonah, for Jonah, three days, remember three days and three nights was uh, a shorthand for the journey from death back to life. And I think what we should read into here is a bit of a, a, an allusion to what happened there, that Jonah's going on another journey and there's another opportunity for us to see uh, people going from death to life, this, this resurrection motif, this uh, journey from back and forth from what's uh, death to what is life. This chapter in a very different one because we're talking about the people of Nineveh. Probably all three of those things are, are probably intended uh, by our narrator uh, here for us to think about. Verse four, we get to the heart of the message. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. So it means either he spent a day with the leaders, or it means that he's just getting started on on a three-day journey, and that this happens right away. And he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's the entire message. It's the entire sermon. In Hebrew, this is originally written in, it's just five words. There's no context. There's no explanation. There's no application. As a preacher, that bothers me because I work really hard at figuring out context and, and explanation and application. And Jonah skips all of that. Just five words and you scratch your head. What are they supposed to take from that? That's the entire message. Let me explain it to you. The key is in that last word, overthrown. Yet 40 days, here's the warning, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The word here that was translated overthrown is purposefully ambiguous. It can mean two different things. And that's so important to this story. Number one, it could mean destroyed. The word, it's basically like an overturning is where the word comes from, the idea. So it could be that you're destroyed. You're overthrown. In 40 days, you are done. But the other way it can be translated is transformed. Again, thrown over, but not overthrown, but, but totally changed. And that is the crux of the message. That is what God wants Nineveh to investigate. Will you bet on God destroying you or transforming you? What do you think God is going to do? And how are you going to respond? Do you want to run to him or do you need to run away from him? 
Are you going to escape from his presence or escape into his presence? And that's what this story is all about. Now, for the Israelites who would have originally read this story, think about what they knew about the Ninevites. The Ninevites were famous for being cruel and violent. We have this in in history, and we could read about it, is that they would, against their enemies, they would not just kill their enemies, they would torture them. They would dismember them. There's stories where, you know, they would kind of tie people up and, and then start dismembering them, and they would leave one hand so that at the end of the torture, they could shake it. They, they would have uh, some of their enemies killed and then decapitated and have their own family and friends who were also captured have to carry them around, parade them around on a stick. Just horrific, horrific, terrible things. And here's the bet. What's God going to do? Is he going to destroy those people? Overthrow them? Or is he going to transform them? We're going to see next week what Jonah's expectation and what he was actually rooting for was. But today, let's just talk about the Ninevites and, and what happens to them. Verse 5, and the people of Nineveh believed God or trusted God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now, this is important, this verse, because that is a very Israelite way and even uniquely Israelite way to grieve or to mourn to come humbly before God. It's not something that everybody did in that part of the world, but the Israelites did. And the comparison is continuing between Jonah, who is supposed to be the good prophetic Israelite character, but he runs from God, the Ninevites, who are supposed to be the terrible, awful anti-God people who are turning to him, and they seem to do it pretty quick. Verse 6, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne Remember kind of all the directions we've been talking about, the up and down in, uh, in the book of Jonah. And Jonah was supposed to go up, but he went down. Finally, he goes up. Here the king right away arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in his ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. This is very humble response. And then this is powerful and put this in the context of the message that was basically like, uh, you know, is God going to overthrow these people, destroy them or transform them? Verse nine, he says, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So it's humble coming to God. Who knows? Maybe it's going to be the transforming one. Maybe we should be betting that God is not primarily anger and he's going to wipe us out and give us what we deserve and that his life for us is all about retribution and an eye for an eye. Maybe, who knows? He'll turn back from his anger. And this raises one of the main questions in the book of Jonah, which is, This is the discussion that we're supposed to come uh, out of the book of Jonah with. Is God retributive or restorative? Is he retributive? That is, eye for an eye, you get what you deserve. You do something bad and he's ready to pounce on you and punish. Is he angry or is he more restorative, loving and forgiving and gracious? We're going to find out next week that Jonah probably loves that God is loving, forgiving and gracious to him, but struggles with that being... uh, also extended to his enemies, to these people that he would have seen as terrible and difficult. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. 
And here we see the character of God being brought out, that God's heart is ultimately not more about retribution, but restoration. God is ultimately about restoration more than retribution. And that is one of the the very key messages of this entire book, is that what God wants is not for people to be overthrown and destroyed, but transformed and restored. Such a powerful story because you see uh, the same motif here. Here's Jonah thrown into the sea and he's as good as dead, but then he's brought back up to the land of living. And now that same motif is being extended to the Ninevites. They're, They're violent and they're destructive and they're headed towards destruction themselves. And now God is giving them transformation. He's turning them over. Now, if you are looking for God to be um, that kind of angry, retributive, destroy your enemy kind of God, you can find that in the Old Testament. You can find verses like that where he, um, he, he tells people to destroy their enemies. And there's just some hard work we have to do in interpreting that and saying, why? Could there possibly be a good reason? It's about God's justice. It's about uh, God making sure that, that, that he doesn't, you know, God's not just a God who says, ah, anything goes, doesn't matter how you treat other people and all that kind of stuff. And um, actually, if you go back uh, this past week, we did a podcast episode uh, on that and on this, this tension between God's justice and love. And so I don't have time to get into that in this message, but go back and listen to that um, as we go into the tough questions in the book of Jonah and I'll talk more about that. But what we see here is, um, and, and this is common for the prophets to do, is to take those motifs and start to bring in attention to say, I know that you can, you can say God is angry and mad and destroying your enemies, but wait, what about this love that he extends to people who absolutely don't deserve it? And they start to say, this actually needs to be the paradigm that becomes um, the, the, the primary one as we deal with, well, what happens, you know, how does God mete out judgment or justice to people, um, you know, that are violent, that are killing other people, that are totally destructive? Uh, how, do we, how do we make sure that we know that God um, is not just going to let those things go? But Jesus comes very much in the, the way that the prophets do to help us orient the way that we see God as primarily loving. So listen to this. We'll go back to this idea of the eye for an eye. This is in Matthew chapter 5. It says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. You have heard it said in the Bible that retribution is, is the way that God wants you to do things. And in the Old Testament, the reason that that law is there, again, is to say you can't punish someone more than what they've done to hurt somebody else. Somebody hurts you, you can't hurt them doubly. Or they injure you, you kill them. And so it's a limiting of this retribution that goes on. But Jesus is going to make it, he's going to take it even further. He says, but I say to you, don't resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. So let's not do the retribution thing. Let's go further and and actually show people how ridiculous it is for them to be in this retribution game. Let's not live this competitive, comparative lifestyle. Let's go further to compassion. Verse 41, and if anyone forces you to go to one mile, go with him two miles. 42, give to the one who begs from you and don't refuse the one who would borrow from you. Then he keeps going. You have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You've looked in the Bible and you found places where God actually tells you or your people, your ancestors to kill their enemies. 
But I say to you, so now we, as Christians, we, we use Jesus as our focal point of interpreting the scriptures as clearly as we can, that Jesus is the picture of the invisible God. He is the exact image. And so when we're trying to figure out these really tough questions of violence in the Old Testament and, and what is God's actual position towards us, is he primarily angry and wants to destroy people or what? We come to Jesus and Jesus helps us to interpret those things. So you found in the Bible, he's basically saying, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. That's the conclusion a lot of people draw when they read through parts of the Bible, the Old Testament. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? Because that's crazy. It is crazy. Why would you do that? Why would you love someone who hates you? Don't we live in an eye for an eye world? So why would we love people who are our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, hurt us, are violent towards us even? Verse 45 tells us, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Here's why. Because when you love your enemy, you're like God. God primarily loves. He is love. And he loves even those who don't deserve to be loved, even those who are destructive. But this is his primary character. So when you love your enemy, when you step into a different way of seeing the world around you, where you're not competing with everyone, you're not comparing yourself to everyone, you can have compassion. And when you do that, you fit into the family of God. There's a family resemblance because that's what God is like. That's the message of Jonah. And that's the message of Jesus. That is the message of the cross. What about a wayward world? Should God just wipe us out again? But we see in the cross that God would rather take the punishment upon himself. He would rather absorb evil and forgive it than treat everybody the way that they deserve. Because love is transformative, not retributive. And I think the message that we should get is the way that people actually change and transform is through love, not through retribution and punishment. And that's what God wants for all of us. That's the escape. Stop living in the eye for eye world. Stop thinking that that's how God operates and being motivated by fear and scarcity and guilt and shame and start to be motivated by his love because that is the love that will transform us. So what does that mean? I think it means that we can live at the pace of grace. The, the rhythm of knowing that we're already loved and we can love others, that we don't have to get even, that we don't have to compete, that we don't have to compare, that we can put that, all that striving and all that stressful and, and guilt-ridden and, and me versus you ways of looking at the world. Take a deep breath and say, it's all grace for me and for me to offer other people. It's a completely different way to live your life. Now, if we think about the great escape story that we started with at the beginning of this, I told you 76 people got out. Here's what happened. Within two weeks, 73 of those people had been recaptured and brought back into the prisoner, the prisoner of war camp. So unfortunate, so sad. Three of them kept going. Here's what I think happens to a lot of us. 
We want to opt out of those ways of living that are destructive, that, that are competitive and comparative. We want to live lives of compassion. And so we step out and we say, oh, I can live differently. I don't have to live the way that I'm being told I have to live, which is always striving for more and, and always trying to get ahead and, and, and me versus you and, and us versus them and all that kind of stuff. And we step out of it. And we feel some freedom, but over time, we just kind of blend back into our lives and we get kind of sucked back in to that competitive and comparative lifestyle. And we need to be reminded over and over that God calls us out, not just to, to quickly say a prayer and that saves us, but to actually walk in the way of Jesus, the way in, of forgiveness for ourselves and for other people, the way of grace, the way of love. And so the way that we do that is we start to order our lives around the pace of grace. Eugene Peterson uh, translated a passage that Jesus spoke in Matthew chapter 11. And I love how he put it in his um, paraphrase, the message he says from Jesus' perspective, are you tired, worn out, burnt out on religion? Come to me, get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't let anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Ah, that phrase, the unforced rhythms of grace. We now have to start walking as if what we believed about grace and forgiveness and compassion is true. So I want to encourage you, if you haven't already downloaded our free resource at ebook, I partnered up with one of our ministry leaders here at Westside, Kaylee Hamilton. Uh, she does coaching in the mental health field. And we put together a resource for you that's going to help you kind of work out some of this practically. And many of you have already got that. If you haven't already, uh, all you need to do is go to our website or hit the link below and uh, it, it'll direct you just a really quick short form. And we'll make sure that you get this in your inbox. But in that book, we talk about some of those rhythms that, that will help you as you implement them in your life to live in the unforced rhythms of grace, things like taking care of your soul, really resting deeply, casting your worries and anxieties away, building good boundaries in your life, staying connected in community. We think all these things can, can really help you uh, to live out these great truths and to live out a life of compassion that God sets out for us. Because I believe that when you're ready to escape from a life of competing and comparing, then you'll be ready to enter the rhythms of compassion. Let's pray together. So our Heavenly Father, I pray that you would remind us of who you are, that you are a God who loves. You are love. And that love is extended to each and every one of us. Help us to grasp it and to live in it and to offer it to other people. In Jesus' name, amen.